Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 12? Mark 12. We're going to cover this next section. And for context's sake, especially those of you who haven't been here for some of the other sermons, we've been talking about Passion Week. It's commonly called Passion Week, the week that led up to the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. And Sunday, of course, he came into Jerusalem. We talked about that. That was back in chapter 11. And then we saw that he cursed a fig tree. He cleansed the temple or condemned the temple, depending on your point of view. Then he taught his disciples about the fig tree, taught them about prayer and forgiveness. And then the leaders of the temple came and questioned Jesus. Where are you getting your authority? Who told you you could come in and mess up what we have going on here in the temple courtyard? Who gave you permission to come teach these things? And they found fault with him and questioned his authority. And ultimately, they wouldn't answer Jesus' question, so he didn't answer their question because they weren't willing to accept the fact that he came from God and his authority came from God. Then last week, we studied the parable of the vine dressers and the elders, the scribes, the chief priests correctly recognized themselves in that story. That's where we left off there in verse 12 last time. They were offended because they knew that he had spoken that parable about them, against them. So they left him and went away. But they didn't leave him alone for long because still on Tuesday, these things happened on Tuesday, he uh, came in and condemned the temple and cursed the fig tree on Monday and everything else we've covered since then has been on the Tuesday of that week. And we get to this first of a set of questions on Jesus. Different groups are going to come ask him questions. Some of them are silly. Some of them are good questions. But they're all designed to trap him. That's the goal of the groups that are coming to him. And we're going to deal with that first one in this series today. I'm going to read our passage. Hopefully you've had a chance to find your way to Mark 12. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, and I'm going to read verses 13 to verse 17. You follow along, please. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius so that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are thankful to have your word readily available to us, translated into our own language. We, we have so much access to the words that you have had written down for us, those that you spoke through prophets, Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we would treasure it in our hearts this morning. That you would soften our hearts to be ready for your word to be sown there. Father, I thank you 
for the opportunities of outreach this past week. I know that many of the folks in this room are tired, and yet I pray that you would help us to focus during these minutes on you and on your word and what you have for us. I ask for your help and strength to be clear, to be accurate, to bring out what you want me to this morning. And I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to do that. May he give us ears to hear this morning and may we obey. May we be ready, willing, and even eager to obey what you show us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the first in this grouping, but really the second in a series of questions. They had come and asked about his authority. Where are you getting the authority to do these things? And then we get to the second one, trying to trap Jesus, asking about paying taxes to Rome. Now, there's some underlying questions here, some bigger questions, even than the, the issue of this tribute tax. I'll explain it when we get to it. But as one person said, the question comes down to this. Should we as Christians obey the government at all? Big things, small things. Should we pay taxes, especially if we do not recognize that government's legitimacy or when we reject its policies or when we are subject to its oppression as they were at that time? Should we pay taxes to that kind of government, one that we believe is unjust or unfair or persecuting us? It's a legitimate question to ask. And Jesus answers that question, I believe, through his argument, if you will, his answer to their questions. Now, I've been giving you a key word the last few times. So the key word this morning is taxes. No, I'm just kidding. It's not really taxes. The key word this morning is render. Render. That is probably not a word you have used this week, but it's an important word, and I'll explain it when we get to Jesus' statement about it. Two main ideas for you. First, God appointed all human authorities. We know that from Romans 13.1. Second, God created people in his image, and we know that from all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Both of those are very important truths that apply to what Jesus said in this interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians. So with that in mind, let's go back to verse 13, please, and I'm gonna work our way through the passage verse by verse, beginning in verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, to catch him in his words. Now we start off with a they. Who is they in this verse? It's undefined, but naturally it would refer back to verse 12, the Sanhedrin. Not the entire Sanhedrin, 70, 71 people, but the group that had come and asked Jesus the previous set of questions. They sent to him, we have two groups listed here, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were enemies. They didn't like each other. They were on opposite sides of almost every issue you could think of back in that day. But this is not the first time that Mark has mentioned them together. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, after Jesus had healed the man who had a deformed hand in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, those two groups came together even back then to start plotting how they could destroy him, how they could kill Jesus. So they're enemies, but they are friends because they have a common enemy in Jesus. 
they hated Jesus. And when I say they were opposite, Kent Hughes in his commentary gave some examples of ways in which they disagreed. One is that the Pharisees were nationalistic. They believed that Israel had its own right to govern, that these, these Romans shouldn't be here. So they were nationalistic. The Herodians, they had sold themselves out to the Romans. They had ingratiated themselves to the Romans. They, they were um, not worshipers, but fans of Herod and his descendants, particularly Herod Antipas. The Pharisees would have been spiritually and politically conservative. Remember, they wanted to follow the rules. They were the extra super holy people. Then the Herodians, they didn't care so much about how you lived. They weren't into all this moral stuff. They just wanted to do whatever was expedient. So they were liberal in that way. Um, more politically, you would say that the Pharisees would have been the right wing and, and the Herodians would have been the left wing. And the Pharisees resisted Rome and the Herodians supported Rome. And even though they would disagree on night and day, everything was different. The only thing that they could find to agree on was Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat and we need to do something about him. Because to the Pharisees, Jesus was a religious threat. He was threatening their stranglehold on the religious authority of that day. We need to do something about him or he is going to undermine us with this strange teaching with authority. And the Herodians were seeing it as a political thing. If, if he continues, then he's going to mess up everything we've worked out by supporting Herod and the Romans. So it was a political threat to them. And either way, he was stepping on their toes because he was threatening their power, their control. And all of us, when someone threatens what we think is our power and control, don't usually respond very well. And they didn't. They said, all right, let's work together. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Now, Mark says specifically that it was some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we compare the other Gospels, we get a little bit more information and Matthew says that it was the disciples of the Pharisees. What that suggests is that these may have been the younger ones, the disciples of the Pharisees. These were the young ones, not the famous ones, not the most well-known. And maybe they can kind of sneak in while Jesus isn't suspecting anything. Maybe he won't recognize them and they can get away with this trick question. Why do you think that? Well, we also have Luke who describes them as spies from the Pharisees. So their motive is beyond question here. Why were they there? Mark tells us it was to catch him, or your translation may say to trap him. Because literally, that word for catch means to take in hunting, to ensnare. How were they going to do that? In his words, by means of a word, is how that reads. So they're hoping that they can get him to say something that he will regret. Do we not see this today? The media is really good either side, they're going to take this one little sound bite and make it sound like that politician or whoever said what he or she didn't say. They're going to catch a snippet. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to ask him a question when he's off guard and just trap him in one little statement, one little word, so that then they can get him in trouble. Verse 14, when they had come, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. And care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't it sound like they like Jesus? Not at all. 
we have to beware when our enemies start complimenting us. You need to be on your guard if someone who you know is against you is saying nice things about you. And they made statements about him that were true. He didn't contradict the statements they were making because by and large, that verse are all true statements about Jesus. But he saw through their insincerity. He saw through their flattery. And we'll see that more in verse 15. They start off well enough, teacher or elsewhere that's translated master sometimes. And so that's a term of respect. They're starting off respectfully, teacher, master. We know that you are true. In other words, we know that you are a man of integrity. You say what you mean. You mean what you say. You live according to what you say. You practice what you preach. That's what they're saying. Is that true of Jesus? Absolutely, yes. The next statement might be confusing the way it's worded here. You care about no one. What do you mean Jesus cares about no one? Well, another way that's translated is you do not care about anyone's opinion. It's not saying that Jesus didn't care. We've seen over and over in the book of Mark, he healed people. He had compassion on the multitudes because they were hungry. Jesus cared about people. That's beyond dispute. But we could say that he was not a people pleaser. Those of us who have personality tendencies more along those lines that we want to make sure everybody likes us, everybody's happy with us. Let's remember, Jesus was not a people pleaser. He didn't intentionally offend most people. He made the exception for some of these religious leaders we're dealing with right now. But in general, he was very kind, very compassionate, very considerate of others, but he did not do things to make the multitudes happy. And that becomes clearer and clearer as we study through the rest of this chapter and the following chapters in Mark going into this last week of his life and ministry here on earth. It says, you do not regard the person of men. This means he was impartial. He was not showing favoritism. He didn't say nice things only to the people he liked. He didn't heal only the people he liked. He didn't teach only the people he liked or the ones who were rich or well-dressed or smelled nice. He loved all of them. He cared for all of them. He taught. He healed. He did that for anyone and everyone. That is, he was following his father's plan, so he did not truly heal everyone, but he healed many, and according to his father's will, he didn't do that on the basis of somebody's birth or status or anything else. He treated people the same. This is similar to a statement in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Samuel... God told Samuel to go choose the next king. Saul has rejected me. Go choose the next king. So he went to Bethlehem. He went to the sons of Jesse and went through the sons. And based on that first king, King Saul was apparently a very tall guy as we read the Old Testament. So when Saul saw the sons of Jesse, he looked at the firstborn who's tall, strong, handsome, and thinks that must be the one. Thank you. Samuel said that. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, not him. In fact, not the next one. In fact, not any of the ones in the lineup in front of you. Why? Here's the verse, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You could say we can't really help but notice that person's tall, that person's short, that person's younger, that person's older. We notice outward things about people. And that's what this verse is saying, that we, we tend to be focused probably too much on the outward appearance. But God 
sees our heart. And what he saw in that runt of the litter, David, was a man after God's own heart. That's how he's described elsewhere in the Bible. That's the idea behind their statement. You do not regard the person of men. You don't care whether someone's especially talented or smart or tall or strong or eloquent. You care about what's going on inside. And frankly, that's why so often he was rejecting and, and keeping at a distance these who were so insincere, those who were flattering him, those who were, who were hypocrites. Last statement in that verse, you teach the way of God in truth. They saw that he taught the way of God honestly and accurately. That was his habit. That's what he did. So at that point, halfway through verse 14, they have finished with buttering him up, flattering him, and they finally get to their question. So here's the question at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful? That's their question. Is what lawful? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Is it lawful? Is it right? Is it legally permitted according to the law of Moses for us to be paying taxes to Caesar? So they say, is it lawful or not? Do you notice that they give him only two choices there? They're making this multiple choice. They want a a yes or no kind of answer. They're limiting the options. In logic, this is called a false dichotomy, as if here's my question and you can answer only one of these two ways. They're setting him up. Is it lawful or not to pay taxes to Caesar? We need to understand what this is. Taxes to Caesar, it was a poll tax. And this tax had to be paid by all the men and all the women in the Roman Empire once a year. From age 12 up to 65 for men, and for some reason, 14 to 65 for women. So every year you had to pay this amount. Now here's why this was an issue for them. Go back to the time of Abraham. Those of you who've read Genesis, you know what's in the Old Testament. God had promised Abraham the land to his descendants forever. Right? That was the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants forever. Now, were they in the land at this point? Yes, they were. Were they governing themselves? No, they were not. Was Rome at that time a friendly government toward followers of Judaism? No. In some cases, persecuting. At best, mildly mistreating. So their question is, if God gave us the land, then why should we pay for the privilege of living in it? Is that not a logical question? If the land belongs to us, why do we need to pay the emperor once a year for the privilege of living here and breathing the air in the promised land? So that was the reason that this was a debatable question, uh, a popular question, one that a lot of people disagreed on. Why should they pay any other government, king, etc., if they had a relationship with God and in that relationship he had promised them the land? So here's what it came down to. 
If Jesus said that they should pay, yes, if all he said was, yes, you should pay the tax to Caesar, then they knew that popular opinion would turn on Jesus because the people resented paying that tax for the very reasons I've just been explaining. But if he said, no, you shouldn't pay it. After all, God gave you the land generations ago. It's yours. If he said no, then the Herodians would have been offended and they would have reported him and the Roman government would have been ticked and they would have punished him. So the Herodians and Pharisees had partnered together to say, all right, this is the question. And if he answers the way we want to, he's in trouble. And if he answers the way our group wants to, he's in trouble. So either way, we've got him. That's what they thought. That's what they were trying to set up. But he, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, their acting, their wearing of a mask, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Now when it says, knowing their hypocrisy, again, I'm going to give you some cross-references. The account in Matthew says, Jesus perceived their wickedness. Luke said he perceived their craftiness. John, not in a parallel, but John, early in his gospel, chapter 2, said that Jesus knew what was in the heart of men. He knew not to trust himself to people because he knew what was in their hearts. And that's what is the case here. He knows their true motives. And so he asks, why do you test me? Another translation says, why are you trying to trap me? Why are you doing this? And when it says test me, this is the same word that Mark used back in chapter 1 when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. It's the same word that has been used a couple other times of the Pharisees who are tempting him, testing him, trapping him, or trying to. So what is his answer? He doesn't say, yes, pay the tax. He doesn't say, no, don't pay the tax. He says, bring me a denarius. Bring me one of those coins. Let's talk about it. I want to see it. Now, it's not that Jesus had never seen one. I'm not sure what we're talking about here. Why don't you bring me a coin so that I can investigate this? He wants to use it as a visual aid. So he asks them to bring a denarius. Now, as I studied this this week, I learned that in Jesus' day, when a new king, a new emperor, conquered new territory, he would issue a coin that had his image on it. And that coin, as it circulated, would remind those conquered people that this is my coin, I'm ruling over you. If you want to have a part in the economy, just remember, I'm the boss. I make the rules. This is my money. That was the idea of that time. It proved that he was that leader, or she, but that that one was the leader as far as that coin circulated. The coin itself was a small silver coin, and it, it was the equivalent of a day's wage for either a common laborer or a soldier. We, we've come across this term before. And I tried to figure out what would that be for us. So I looked at what the average salary is in North Carolina and divided that out to figure out what that would be for a day. And obviously, for some of you, it'll be more, some of you less, but almost $250. Almost $250. And that was the amount that had to be paid to Rome by all adult men and women just for the privilege of being in the Roman Empire. It went straight to the emperor's treasury. It didn't improve roads there directly or anything like that. It just went straight to the emperor. And that's what every person had to pay. 
And guess what? This tax had to be paid in that coinage. Had to be one of those coins, that denomination. We talked a few weeks ago about the money changers in the temple were taking advantage because they had their own coin that you had to pay or buy sacrifice animals and that kind of thing. Well, that's the way this was. You had to pay in that coin this tax once a year. They brought it. Some have said somebody may have pulled it out of his change purse, but it was actually considered wrong for these religious leaders, anybody who was there in the temple, to have one of these coins. You weren't really supposed to carry those if you were a holy person. So they may have had to go to a money changer to get one of these coins, but somebody brought it. Somehow they came up with one. And it's amazing when you consider, as he holds that coin, who was the governing authority that issued that coin? It was Caesar. It was the Roman government. Who were the people who were going to put him to death just a few days later? The Romans. Roman soldiers. Yes, there were multiple groups involved. But ultimately, a, a group of Roman soldiers would crucify him. So in spite of the fact that in a few days, he's going to be crucified by the people who issued this coin, he is still going to tell them, pay the tax. Pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And that's where we are in the halfway through verse 16. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, I, I looked for a photo, because usually that's worth a thousand words. So here we go. Whose image and inscription is this? One of my commentaries said that on one side of the coin was a bust of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, Son of the divine Augustus, just in case you couldn't read that Latin that's abbreviated. I couldn't either. The other side had an image of Tiberius's mother. It's at least a female, but they think it was Tiberius's mother, Livia, with the words Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So the Jews found this offensive on multiple levels. First off, the emperor is claiming to be God. And on the back, a female is claiming to be the high priest. So this was an offense. The very coin was an offense to the Jewish people. Now I want to point something else out. In Jesus' surprising answer to them, he changed the wording of the question they'd asked. Because what did they ask? They said, should we pay or should we not pay? Or you could also say, should we give or should we not give? They have an either or, right? Jesus is going to change it up on them. What he says is render, which means to give back, and render, give back. So they had an either or. He has a both and. And he changes the verb. It's not just pay the tax. It's not just give. It is give back. That word render means to pay or give back. It implies there is a debt to be paid. There's a sense in which those coins that had Caesar's image on them belonged to Caesar. And he's saying, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. That's the message he's sending them. So what does this mean for us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? And this brings us back to what we were talking about briefly in our scripture reading earlier. We must submit 
to governmental authority, the government that God has established. We are supposed to submit. We are supposed to obey the government authority. You say, I don't like that. I don't either. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I ask, how many of you like speed limit signs? How many of you like traffic lights or stop signs or yield signs? There are laws that are on the books that we're required to obey. Let's look at some of these passages because both Paul and Peter expanded on, applied what Jesus said here about rendering to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Two of these verses, the first two we read earlier, Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject. That's the first way we're supposed to respond to government, to be subject. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be subject. Skipping down to verse 7, render, that's our same word, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Give the honor, give the respect, and even give back the tax money. Render what is due. You say, well, I don't think it's a fair tax system. I didn't say it was a fair tax system. I didn't say I thought it was a fair tax system. But it is the tax system that we currently have, and you don't have to pay more than you should, but certainly don't pay less than you should. Pay what you owe. Why? Because, as we read in the middle of those verses, The government is given for our good. Not everything they do is good. Not all the people involved in it are good. But God has established that authority for our good. Next section written by Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, we have something else we're supposed to do in response to government. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Good. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. What, is, what do those two verses tell me? What is my response to government supposed to be? To pray for those in authority. It doesn't say pray for the ones that are nice to you or agree with you or go with your political views. It says pray for those in authority. They wouldn't have agreed with much, if anything, that that emperor was doing or Herod was doing but pray for those who are in authority. That's 1 Timothy. Let's go to Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Therefore submit, that's something else we're supposed to do, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, other believers, fear God, honor the king or more literally, in that time, the emperor. Give honor to Caesar. So putting that together, we are supposed to be subject to the governing authorities. We are supposed to render what is due to the governing authorities. We're supposed to pray for our government authorities. We're supposed to submit to them. And we're supposed to show respect to, honor them. How are we doing on that? Do more people know what you disagree with on a particular president or governor? Or do more people know that you pray for that president or governor? We need to think about that. We need to 
live according to what the book is telling us. So what I'm suggesting, based on what the Bible says, is that we have responsibilities to the government. We do. We're supposed to obey. We're supposed to submit. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to honor. And we're supposed to fulfill that responsibility as our Christian duty up to one limiting point. This is the caveat. This is the asterisk. Okay, there is a time that we don't. And that is when the government tells us to do something that God says don't do that. Or when the government tells us we can't do something that God tells us to do. And then we disobey. And then we suffer whatever consequences there are. Because God has put that authority in place. Here's how it played out early in the book of Acts. Peter and the other apostles answered, in this case, the religious leaders, but I think we can apply it to governing authorities as well. He said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Why? Because they said, don't talk about this Jesus anymore. Go about your business, but don't talk about this risen Jesus. Don't tell anybody he rose from the dead. Stop it. Can't do that anymore. And what did he say? We have to obey God rather than men. So when the government tells you, do something that is immoral, you don't do it. When the government tells you you can't pray or you can't read your Bible or you can't tell anyone else about your faith, you disobey. But if it's something that the Bible does not specifically address or if what you're being told to do is not contrary to Scripture, guess what? You better obey it. Because that is the authority structure that God has put into place for our good. We have this duty to government, but we have a greater duty to God. And that's the second part of Jesus' statement. God is the one who created us. God is the one who redeemed us. And therefore, we are supposed to render to God the things that are God's. What does that mean? What are the things that are God's? Some of you may be thinking money because that's what the tax situation was. That's not, that, that barely scratches the surface, folks. We are the things that are God's. Kent Hughes said, we are God's coin because we bear his image. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is a lot in that verse. You have to believe first that there is a God. You have to believe that he created. That he created man. He formed him out of the dust of the ground, is what we read there in Genesis. But he did so in his own image. There is some way in which you and I express the image of God, reflect the image of God. It says, in the image of God, he created him, don't forget the last statement there, male and female, he created them. God created you either male or female. That's what the Bible teaches. He created you to be male or female, your gender, in some way, reflects God's image. And as I read Genesis and other places, it seems to me that it takes both genders, male and female, to reflect the image of God. It would be incomplete if we had only male or only female. So, male, you're created in God's image. You reflect his character. Female. You reflect God's character. God created 
male and female, in his image. So what are you saying, Bob? Our appearance, our gender, our sexuality, our authority and influence over the rest of creation. Because remember, God created the world and he created humans at the top of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, so that what was Adam and Eve's responsibility? Adam got to name the animals, to call their names. And he was supposed to tend the garden. Men and women were designed to rule over, take care of the rest of creation. In that way, God has created an order. God has created you exactly the way he wants you to be, physically speaking, the gender he wants you to be, and he's given us a job to do, to be his representatives here on earth of his authority structure. God rules over everything. He has, he invited Adam and Eve to help rule the world under him. And guess what? They sinned. We messed it up, didn't we? His creation was marred. And it will never be back the way he designed it to be until we read much later at the end of the New Testament. But there is coming a day when everything will be put back together the way he intended it to be. And in the meantime, to some degree, even in our fallen state, we are supposed to reflect his image as he created us to be. So that's God's image. What he said then, God created you. You are his image bearer. And you should give back to him what belongs to him. Who is that? What is that? That's you. That's your life. That's my life. That's what we're supposed to give back. When he says, render to God the things that are God's, give yourself to God. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It makes sense, is what Paul is saying, that you would be a living sacrifice. That is reasonable. That makes sense. What does that mean? That means all of me is given to God. All of me is dedicated, is sacrificed to God. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it fits this verse and this concept very well. I read about uh, a woman who was a newly saved person, a, a new believer in Africa. And she went to a church service. Shortly after she was saved, after she was baptized, she went to a church service, and as part of the church service, they were receiving an offering, and they passed an offering plate around. And so other people were taking their money out of their pockets or their change purse or whatever. They were putting money into that offering plate. And she realized she didn't have any money with her. She was very poor. And so when the plate came, she didn't really know what to do. And the usher handed her the plate. And what she finally decided to do, she set the plate down on the ground and she stood in it. And she said out loud so everybody could hear, God, I don't have any money to give you, but I'm going to give you myself. And that's the picture of Romans 12.1. Whether you have any money to give him or not, you are giving everything you have. This is all yours, God. That's the idea of a living sacrifice. That is holy and acceptable to God. So he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Give him the coin. But in so doing, understand you must give to God what belongs to him, and that's all of who you are. 
It's not just a coin once a year. I mean, $250 may be a lot to some of us. I get that. But he wants 100%. How'd they respond? They marveled at him. Some of your translations will say, and they were amazed at him. They wondered beyond measure. They couldn't even get over it. So just as that first group had failed to trap Jesus in the matter of his authority, the second group failed to trap him in this issue of integrity or of paying taxes or of submitting to the government. It's a brilliant response. Even people who don't believe in God or the Bible recognize in reading this account that it is logically an incredible answer. And they marveled. They wondered at it. Unfortunately, they didn't repent. They didn't change their minds about Jesus. They still crucified him a few days later. But they were amazed. Hope we won't stop at being amazed. Oh, that's an impressive answer, Jesus. But that we would be changed to be more like him. What do I want you to remember from this morning? God appointed all authority. Any authority that exists in the family, in the church, in government, all of it ultimately comes from God. And we are created in God's image. That's how he designed it. Now, maybe you have never believed on Jesus. Maybe this is new to you or different for you. That's okay. But the concept here is that God created everything. He gets to make the rules, and we can't follow his rules. We don't follow his rules. But he, in his mercy, didn't just create us. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He provided a way to deal with our sin problem. And the way that works is that by believing on Jesus, he will save us. He will make us part of his family. He will deal with our sin. He will take our punishment on him. What do we have to do? Believe on him, accept that gift of salvation, that gracious gift that he's given. Those of you who've done that, God's will is for us to be like Jesus. Romans 8, 29 says that he predestined or he appointed us to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants us to be like Jesus. That's God's will for us. But that's not something that we can do on our own. Instead, we have to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Word of God in our lives to change us to be more like Him. So, my question for you then, if you're a believer, are you reflecting God's image to others? Did you reflect His image to anyone this past week? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus? And directly from this passage, do you recognize the authorities that he has put in your life? Are you a good citizen of both heaven and of earth? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is the Holy Spirit pointing to something in your life today that needs to change? If so, obey him. It'll be specific. It won't be a a general, oh, I just kind of feel guilty. No, if there's something specific, then the biblical response is for us to turn from that, to repent, to confess any sin that we know of. 
and to come back to God. You say, well, Bob, I don't know of anything specific. Then that's fine. Pray for others around you or thank the Lord for the authorities he's placed in your life. But I do want to allow these few seconds of silence for you to respond to the word of God that we've just been studying. Our Father, we are thankful that you continue to speak to us today through your word. I pray that we would be receptive to it. I do thank you for the authorities you've put in our lives, and I pray that we would respond correctly to them. Lord, we are your image bearers. Please help us by your grace to reflect you to other people, to reflect the love of Jesus to other people, to yield to your Holy Spirit to make us more conformed, more like Jesus. Lord, may we have lives that are honest, lives of integrity. that we would be good citizens of both heaven and earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.